Where leaders go, learning follows. At Harvard Business School, we offer in-person and virtual executive education programs on a broad range of business topics. Each program addresses real-world challenges and is taught by our world-renowned faculty. Join an exceptional peer group. Sharpen your leadership skills. Advance your career. It's your time. Go. To apply, visit hbs.me slash go. That's hbs.me slash go. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Right, today is June the 17th in 2022, and my guest is Jessica Flanagan. Jessica is a professor for ethics at the University of Richmond. She's the author of books such as Pharmaceutical Freedom and Debating Sex Work. Today, we're going to talk about pharmaceutical freedom and patients' rights, as well as the ethics of human challenge trials and how to accelerate medical innovation. You, Jessica, welcome to the Stranded Technology Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, my introduction was a bit sparse. <laughs> Please tell the listeners what you'd like them to know about you. Um, well, I currently teach at the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia, in the U.S., and, and I work mostly on issues of medical ethics and political philosophy, and I'm especially interested in philosophical issues around political authority, the justified use of state power, and then also issues related to paternalism within that general um, theme. So um, most of my research is in medical ethics and public health ethics, um, but I also do some work on things about economic freedom and freedom of contract. Fantastic. I'd like to start with your book, Pharmaceutical Freedom. Why did you write the book and what is it about? So Pharmaceutical Freedom came about initially because I noticed that there was a really big asymmetry between how people should be treated and how people were treated in many clinical contexts, which is the doctrine of informed consent. People would say, you have the right, you have the authority to make decisions about your own body. And you know, physicians, they can't coerce you or trick you into making a body decision. And on the one hand, and then on the other hand, um, in the marketplace, when it came to medical decisions involving pharmaceuticals, the FDA and public officials were extraordinarily paternalistic towards people. And so um, I thought that that asymmetry was unjustified. I also, when I first came to this topic, part of it was looking at areas in clinical ethics where I thought people were also treated paternalistically. So birth and end-of-life care are two areas where I have an interest as well. And I really was motivated to write the book by thinking that these asymmetries are unjustified, that we shouldn't be paternalistic in any of these contexts, and that the emergence of the doctrine of informed consent over the course of the 20th century was a sign of moral progress and that we should continue to expand people's medical autonomy in these ways. So that's in a way kind of a radical conclusion, right? You're saying it's morally wrong for medical authorities such as the FDA to prohibit patients from self-medicating and making their own choices. Is that fair to say? And what are the typical reactions you get by lay people, not by experts? I feel that it's less revisionary than you would think. So if we just were to characterize what the FDA does and how the current pharmaceutical system works um, in a kind of abstract way, I feel like that illustrates a sort of moral failure of the current system that we've been blind to because it's just the status quo. So if I were to say, yeah, if you want to make an important medical decision about your body and your health, according to public officials, you need to get a permission slip from someone that they've authorized to hand out these permission slips for you to make these choices. You would be like, well, why do I need a permission slip from somebody who has like a special authorization from a public official? It's my body. I'm the expert when it comes to my body. And so 
I feel like during the COVID pandemic, we've really seen that kind of push where people have thought like, wait a minute, like, why do we have to wait for the FDA to approve these things? Why can't I make that decision? If I want to take on the risk of using an unauthorized vaccine, why can't I make that decision myself? So I feel like if you sort of explain it that way, it becomes more intuitive. Or for example, if you told people, yeah, like there are people who are dying of terminal illnesses or very painful illnesses, degenerative illnesses um, that limit their lives. And they would definitely take an investigational drug, but they have to wait sometimes for years before they can access it. And many people are going to die while they're waiting um, until the FDA puts a stamp of approval on it and tells people it's allowed um, or until some other firms who regulate depending on your country. You would think, well, that sounds terrible. I mean, people who are terminally ill, they have nothing to lose. Like, why not let them make that decision? And so I think there are many cases of rights of self-medication that we find very intuitive, um, but we're sort of um, blind to the harms of pharmaceutical regulation because when people die or suffer because of unjust regulation, it just looks like they're suffering or dying from their diseases. We don't say like, oh, they were killed by the FDA or they were killed by burdensome regulations. Um, whereas when people use a dangerous drug, it looks like the drug killed them and that regulation could have prevented it. So there's this bias in how we think about it. But if we sort of zoom out a little bit, then I think that the injustice of the current system becomes a lot clearer. Yes. And just to give our listeners some backgrounds, the cost of approving a drug in the United States with the FDA is in the billions. And because the United States is the biggest market in the world, and the FDA has kind of a very big influence also on regulations outside the United States, right? The FDA approves on average 51 drugs and novel therapies per year, 51, right? So, so many people might feel comfortable, right? So the FDA is going at great pains to make sure drugs are safe and effective, right? They're spending billions, but you're saying this is wrong or at least very largely misguided, right? Exactly. People think that the FDA is keeping them safe, but it's actually putting them at risk. And the risk is threefold. For one thing, there's a risk to having a burdensome approval process because it deters innovation. So think about all of the cool drugs that could have gotten invented or could have been available to people, but they sort of can't get enough funding to kind of navigate this extremely expensive billion dollar plus approval process. And so we don't even know what kinds of interesting innovations we could have witnessed over the past half a century, but for the burdensome regulations that are imposed by pharmaceutical regulators. The second risk of the regulation is that, as I said earlier, people die waiting for um, approval. So every time the FDA says, now that this drug is approved, we expect that it'll save 50,000 life years per year, or it'll extend the lives of 10,000 people. Well, what you should hear from that statement in your head is, okay, if it took them, let's say, five years to go through the approval process, that means that each of those years had a cost of 50,000 life years or 10,000 people that could have benefited from the drug. And then the third cost that is imposed on us by this kind of excessive caution in the FDA is once a drug is approved and requires a prescription, uh, we are all collectively bearing the additional costs associated with navigating that regulatory process. And so it just makes drugs less expensive, less accessible, adds to the expense of accessing drugs potentially. Um, and sometimes drugs aren't approved. And then those drugs are prohibited for everybody, even if they could have had some kind of therapeutic value for a subpopulation of patients. And so prohibition and the prescription system is also a risk that people, I think, under acknowledge. This is not only indictment of the FDA, but it seems like that's how the medical system in any developed country works, right? Or are there any countries that do relatively better or have some regulatory innovations? Uh, in general, regulatory capacity is a version of state capacity. So the more state capacity a country has, the more they can implement uh, these burdensome regulations. So there's many benefits to having a state that can effectively you know, maintain rule of law, property rights, um, that has like a robust capacity to uh, provide services to people. But this is one of the downsides. And so because states with very high state capacity tend to be richer and they drive the drug market, 
you sort of see the effects of having these very large, very efficient regulatory, not efficient, very effective uh, regulatory apparatuses that can limit people's access to potentially beneficial therapeutics, you see that affecting the entire world. So um, it's not up here. So not a, a lot of states don't have the capacity to regulate and restrict drugs in this way. But the drugs that are even available that ever get developed and tested, that is very influenced by these larger markets, which have a more cautious regulatory approach in general. Is there any way to quantify what's at stake in this debate? Can you other estimates on what you could gain by abolishing the more prohibitive approach and adopt, say, a more certificatory or more permissive approach? And can, or can you give us a sense of who is harmed by the status quo? Well, we can see this in the recreational drug space. So oftentimes when we look at the liberalization of the law regarding recreational drugs, before there's drug legalization or decriminalization. So if you look at, for example, like BC up in Canada or Colorado in the States um, or many places here, marijuana, decriminalization, legalization in the U.S. right now. Before you have the liberalization, people always predict just like mass pandemonium, huge public health problems, total chaos. And we don't typically see that when we make, when we, when places adopt a more liberal approach to regulating recreational drugs. Um, or, you know, the Portugal model of decriminalizing recreational drug use. So I think that that should be instructive to people who are afraid of having really bad effects of liberalizing pharmaceutical access because, you know, those very same people have, you know, argued that the sky was falling and said that it would be terrible if we had recreational drug liberalization and it didn't happen. Um, and I also think a similar thing about medical aid and dying, um, where people have been very worried about, you know, human rights violations or you know, eroding the sanctity of life. And I don't think that that's been borne out by European and Canadian and American forays into providing greater access to medical aid and dying. So those are presumptive reasons to think that the consequences of liberalization would not be uh, as bad as people think. Another reason to think that they wouldn't be as bad as people think is that um, we could still have all of the benefits that regulators provide us through a certification. So if you really love drug regulations, let them certify drugs that they think are safe and effective, just like they do now, but just don't make it a prohibition. So it could be like the you know, FDA seal of approval and insurance providers could decide to only pay for things that are FDA certified. You know, we could have many ways of shaping incentives to guide people towards more responsible or effective self-medication choices or to make them more informed in their self-medication choices, which don't involve prohibition. So if you're wondering like, well, what would be the effect of liberalization? We have a lot of reason to think that the anticipated downsides of liberalizing access to pharmaceuticals could be effectively managed through public health and certification awareness campaigns and incentives or insurance providers of what they pay for. Um, and then your the other flip side of like what would happen if we had a policy is would it promote well-being? And I argue we have very strong reason to think it would promote well-being, not just because of the considerations I mentioned earlier, which is that every year of delay is a year that people suffer and die waiting for a drug to be approved. Every additional burden associated with the approval process is a burden that deters pharmaceutical innovation, um, but also because we know that people are generally, should be assumed to be the presumptive experts about what is going to promote their well-being. So a doctor, a regulator, they might not know about how a person's health or their tolerance for side effects or their tolerance for risk factor into their life as a whole. Generally, the patient knows. And so putting the power to self-medicate back in the hands of patients we have pre-theoretical reasons to think would be a big benefit to well-being. And then in terms of cost, uh, letting people self-medicate with drugs or treating chronic conditions or you know, other health conditions with drugs instead of hospitalization or surgery 
is generally a cost savings, even if the drugs are themselves very expensive, because paying for a health worker, paying for a hospital bed, paying for a procedure, that's all very, very expensive and getting more expensive because of cost disease. And so there's reasons to think that really incentivizing pharmaceutical innovation should be a big priority just in terms of looking at healthcare cost savings as well. I was looking into medical innovation for a couple of years, more seriously, maybe one and a half, two years ago. Um, but it didn't even strike me, even though I spent loads of my time looking into how the system works until COVID hit, how much harm is potentially done by this prohibitive approach, right? So and the insight that really blew my mind, to be frank, is that the mRNA vaccine, like the first version developed by Moderna, was created over the course of a weekend in January 2020, right? And then afterwards, it took about, I think it was 10 or 11 months to get approved, and we probably got extremely lucky. Right. Yeah. But under normal circumstances, we would have waited for years to get the first vaccine. So I point this example often out to people and I tell them, like, what if we had a system that gets the vaccine out to people faster? And then everyone's like, ah, but that's a trade off with safety. And, you know, how do we know that the vaccine would be safe? How do you respond to that? Well, the first thing I would ask people who worry about safety is, what do you mean by safety? What, what does it mean to call something safe? And what it is to say that something is safe is it's a normative judgment. It says that the benefits outweigh the risk. So something is safe just in case the person who's making the judgment about safety judges that the benefits are greater than the risks. So what the current system has is that regulatory agents like FDA, they make that judgment of safety for everybody in the country. <laughs> they decide whether the risks and the benefits are balanced enough. Now, my argument is, alternatively, you could let every individual make a judgment about safety, let regulators weigh in about their opinion about safety, but not impose that normative judgment about safety on an entire population. The second thing to notice is that, you know, the COVID vaccine approval happened, or not approval, authorization, I guess, happened extremely quickly. And everybody can see the value of not delaying access, going a little bit faster. And so what would make somebody think that the 11 months that it took for approval, that that was optimal, right? Because if you ask people like, okay, like, do you think that they should have sat on it a little bit longer and let more people die of COVID before rolling out the vaccine? People will say like, oh, no, no. I think that, you know, when they did approve it, that was a good time. Um, and then it's like, oh, okay, but like, why not go a little bit shorter? Why not have approved it even earlier? And then people are like, no, that would have been too soon. But why do people think that? Like, why think that the, that the way that the FDA approved it was optimal? I think that that's just a kind of status quo bias. And if you shift the burden of proof to say, no, explain why this approval time, this lag time was optimal, given the risks and benefits at stake. I think it's very hard to justify such a lengthy approval process even in the case of the COVID vaccine, which is relatively quick. I agree. Um, and I think we're, or I'm, we're both thinking about this a bit like anonymous, right? So there is kind of two alternatives. One is the status quo, right? The approval takes like 10 to 12 months. And the other one would be an alternative system, right? Um, I think what's a bit problematic about that argumentative strategy is that you know, you're talking about kind of unseen consequences, right? You call yeah. this at one point an indivisible graveyard. In the world. I don't know. It seems to be hard for people to understand without a bit of training or background in economics, right? Which is, it seems to me also why you focus in your book more on moral arguments, right? Yeah. People see people who die of COVID and they think that they died of COVID. But for some number of those people, they actually died of a lack of access to a vaccine that would have prevented them from getting COVID or getting COVID as severely as they did. And so it is difficult to make it salient to people what the harms are of the status quo, because 
it does look like people are dying because of their illnesses and not because of regulation. So when I focus on the moral arguments, then I make a more rights-based claim where I'm like, well, even if the consequences are as the skeptics say they are, which I, they're not, okay, I'm even granting that, my body, my choice. Like people have the right to take on risks. And if we think about vaccines, that's actually like, some people did do that during the development of COVID vaccines. So there was a group at MIT during the COVID vaccines where vaccine development during the pandemic over the summer of 2020 called RADVAC, where they would just like make their own vaccine and like squirt it up their nose, I think. And, um, you know, they, it wasn't, it was outside of the traditional development pathway, but they were able to like take on those risks themselves because they were making a bodily choice for themselves. And I think that everybody should be able to make that calculus about risks and benefits, even if they're much more risk tolerant than a public official would be, because these are intimate bodily choices, just like any other medical choice that you have a right to make. Exactly. That's sometimes also how I try to illustrate it when I make that point. Like I know a case of a university from a friend of mine where the, who developed a COVID test, right? And testing is a whole different story. But the problem was that the CDC also wanted to sort of be the one to authorize what tests are allowed, right? Um, which was not, not a very good way. In any case, it was university researchers that developed this test and they gave it to their faculty, to colleagues, um, to anyone voluntarily, right? I mean, you have a very short communication line to these people, right? That's kind of how trust spread. It spreads from people that first know and then, you know, the first people that trust them is people who, you know, um, are in their immediate community or vicinity, right? And within a short amount of time, they were using the test kind of university-wide and it was very successful. And they asked the CDC for approval only after they could show them the results and tell them it works, right? Because the alternative would have been to go to the CDC and go through a very lengthy bureaucratic process with a very high fixed cost, potentially needing representation in Washington before you can test a single person, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. But the right to test is even more powerful, I think, because it doesn't even involve really like bodily modification in any way. The, the right to test is just people having a right to access information about their own body. And so not only is a restriction on people's access to medical testing a violation of their kind of medical autonomy. It's also a form of censorship because it's like, I'm looking to access truthful speech, like truthful information about something about my own body that I should be entitled to. And then a regulatory agency steps in and prohibits that kind of communication. It's just, I think that's extremely hard to justify. Although, you know, pregnancy tests used to be prohibited in a similar way on the grounds that like people had to talk to a doctor if they were um, pregnant. So it was restrict women's access to pregnancy tests were restricted similarly. So I think the right to test is like a very overlooked right, but I hope that with COVID that we're seeing more support for the right to test. Just for people to learn about their bodies, you know, DNA testing, blood tests, all that stuff. Exactly. Going back to your argumentative strategy, um, I can only recommend every listener to read your book, Pharmaceutical Freedom. If I had one word to describe it, it's persuasive. Um, not only for the points you're making about the medical system, but also it's kind of a masterclass in philosophy, right? So your approach is kind of to argue from principles that, pers that someone of any political ideology would share, right? And from these sort of commonsensical premises, you come to a surprising conclusion. So for example, you say public officials should adopt a presumption in favor of permitting people to make voluntary decisions about their own bodies, as long as these decisions don't violate others' rights, right? Kind of a John Stuart Mill, no harm principle. Why is that presumption in the context that we're talking about controversial? Why are people so strongly resisting? Well, thank you so much for um, saying those nice things about pharmaceutical freedom, first of all. Yeah, I really tried to write the book in a way that was 
going to reach out to skeptics and make the case to people who are a little bit more wary or suspicious of rights of self-medication. So I'm happy that that came across. I think that one reason that people worry about letting people make decisions about their own bodies that aren't going to harm anybody else is that people do think that those decisions could be harmful to other people indirectly. And so one argument that I see a lot in response to my defense of rights of self-medication is, well, if a person does injure themselves by using a dangerous drug, or if a person misuses the drug and later needs medical attention, I'm going to have to pay for that medical attention. Or as a taxpayer or through my insurance system, when people make unhealthy choices, those unhealthy choices are burdensome towards everybody else. So I call this the social cost argument, which is that there is a social cost to medical risk-taking. And so even if it looks like a decision is a self-regarding bodily choice, that self-regarding bodily choice could indirectly, in virtue of the kinds of institutions that most large states with high state capacity and big military agencies have, such as welfare states, it could indirectly impose burdens on their fellow citizens. Now, my response to that is, well, even then, we don't treat other harmful self-regarding decisions in a similar way. So a person's refusal to adopt or to comply with a more healthy diet or their refusal to exercise or their refusal to take their cholesterol medicine every day, we don't think that they should be coercively required to make the healthy choice in those cases. And also, when we think about people having their health care supported by their fellow citizens through, for example, let's take like the welfare state in England, the National Health Service, through the NHS. Um, well, what do we think is going on there? If you think somebody has a right to health care, they are right to health care, even if they've made choices in their lives, like smoking, drinking, or misusing pharmaceuticals, that mean that they're going to have higher health care needs. And you have to provide it regardless. It's, un it's unconditional. Or maybe it's not unconditional, in which case you should let people opt out of their entitlement to those benefits in exchange for having greater medical freedom and medical autonomy. Or maybe we just think about healthcare as like a form of beneficence. It's like a, a gift that governments provide all of their citizens just because they think that that's like, I don't know, like a rebate for a property system or I don't know how you're going to justify it. But if you think that nobody actually has an entitlement to healthcare, then you could not provide it. And then if you are providing it, you don't really have an entitlement to limit somebody's liberty just on the grounds that you want to provide them healthcare later. Um, so those are some of my responses to the social cost argument. I also think that that argument probably empirically does not hold up. Um, I don't think that the current system of restrictions on self-medication is in fact promoting long-term health and well-being. And I don't think that it's minimizing burdens to the welfare states that provide people with health care, partly for reasons I mentioned earlier, which is that having surgery, having providers, having hospital beds is much, much more expensive. And people are generally going to be the experts about how best to promote their own well-being. What I also like about your book is that you give a lot of examples where, you know, that argument, you know, by making choices to harm yourself, you could indirectly harm someone else, we don't let them count, right? So for example, if you get like a tattoo or if you climb Mount Everest, right? Um, or an example that Michael Schumer gives is you um, sit on the couch all day, eat potato chips and play video games. All these decisions, you know, tattoos, the signaling power it has, you know, you might game online with friends. So yes, you are indirectly also influencing others to make bad choices for themselves, but that doesn't give anyone the right to prevent you from, you know, sitting on the couch and eating potato chips, right? Yeah. I mean, your life has to be your own, right? And I think like, yeah, do people make choices that are maybe not in with what they would ideally make if they were like fully, you know, uh, fully living in accordance with some like, I don't know, objective standard that we might think of a human flourishing, I guess. But like, I think that it, there should be a very, very high bar when it comes to overriding a person's own testimony about how they are going to decide to live their life because they're the person that has to live that life. And so I feel like we should 
in general, defer to people, even if we disapprove of the choices they're making. Yeah. And I think that in like people's dating decisions, people's choice of career, like, do I have an opinion about the choices that other people make, people I love, people I know? Sure. But, you know, I just have to defer to them. And I think that the government can do the same. You can give advice. You can signal what you think is a good choice. You can certify drugs. But I don't think that you can force people. Yeah. What you also give another example to illustrate the difference between risky refusal and risky access. Can you give that example? Sure. So imagine two patients, they're diabetics. And the first patient, uh, the doc her, her doctor says, hey, you know what? I think that before we go on to medication, assist medication management for your diabetes, why don't you try to hit an exercise? Um, and she's like, you know what? Like, I've exercised before. It's 100% torture. I'm absolutely not going to suit the end of the diet. I don't want to even start there. I would rather just go straight to medication management for my diabetes. Now, under the current system, she doesn't have rights of self-medication. She needs a permission slip from her doctor in order to access the medication to manage her diabetes. However, notice that the stents oil treats a different patient. So my patient said, their doctor's like, oh, bad news, you have diabetes. I recommend insulin medication management to help you get your diabetes under control. And the patient's like, you know what? I read a book about vegan cooking. I'm going to start going to exercise classes. Just give me some time to try to get this under control with diet and exercise. Now, in that case, we would think, oh, it would be monstrous for the doctor to like force them to get like an insulin pump or force them on the medication management. The doctor should defer, even if the doctor thinks like, oh, it's very risky for them to refuse medication, even though they think like, I know more than them about diabetes. I know that they need to go on medication. We would still think that person has the right to refuse, even though it's a risky refusal decision. So my question is, why is it that when it comes to risky refusal, we think, Absolutely, a patient has a right to make refusal decisions when it comes to medicine, even if it's risky, even if the doctor disagrees. But when it comes to access, the doctor can serve as a gatekeeper and require that somebody try diet and exercise first before medication. That's the core of the asymmetry, where both patients assume are making comparably risky decisions about their bodies and about their health. They're in the same kind of condition, but they're treated very differently. And I don't think that that is justified. And interestingly, in the America, in the 19th century, people did have right to self-medication. And they thought it would have been unconscionable for a doctor or a public official to stand between them and self-medication rights. But in clinical context, they didn't really have rights of informed consent. And paternalism in the clinical context was widespread. Over the course of the 20th century, people kind of lost the right to make access-based decisions at the same time that they were gaining the right of refusal. I think that we should respect people's medical autonomy in both cases. One example that I also like to give is Steve Jobs, right? So he refused potentially life-saving cancer treatment, right? Because he wanted alternative therapies instead. So that might have or might not reduce his lifespan. But would anyone say the doctor could have forced the treatment on Steve Jobs? Like that would obviously be wrong, right? Even though there's Absolutely. probably very great negative externalities for society, right? Because Steve Jobs was one of the most productive members of societies, <laughs> right? So regardless of how high the sort of positive externalities are of paternalism, in the in the case of refusal, we 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 don't hesitate for a second to grant people that right. But in the case of access, where almost anyone that isn't sort of, you know, thinking this through the way we do, or you, or you don't, might reasonably disagree with us, that just seems wrong for people intuitively. Oh, you, know, you can't let anyone take any kind of drugs they want. Yeah. And just think about how monstrous it would have been to force someone like Steve Jobs to undergo chemotherapy, right? That would have been medical battery. That would have been a huge scandal. And yet, at similar high-stakes decisions, we do have a system in place which deprives people of medical autonomy when the stakes are similar and the amount of suffering involved could be the same. I was kind of suspecting there would be kind of a human bias at play, right? So 
some kind of, you know, risky action and versus inaction. But you yeah. just said what was interesting that it wasn't always like that. So people used to presume that they have a right to access. Can we talk a bit more about that and what we know about that? Yeah. Before the 20th century in America, there were all different sorts of medical providers, some kind of like proto-pharmaceutical type stuff, and then like herbal remedies, and you know, many different kinds of therapeutics. And, you know, you can look at this old tiny medicine bottle that was on the label. There was like wild stuff that people were still medicating with. And some of it was pretty dangerous. Um, and, you know, physicians could provide advice about different kinds of therapeutics. But culturally, throughout the 19th century, people affirmed rights of self-medication as being a subspecies of bodily right. And it wasn't until the 1930s when there was a significant drug disaster involving children who were poisoned by elixir sulfidamide, which was an anti-infectant that was diluted with like a poisonous dilution. So many children died. And that led to widespread calls for federal regulation of suitable space. And that was the beginning of restrictions on self-medication rights. Now, that around that time in the 20th century is when people started valuing self-medication less because they could, they had access to media that was telling them more about the dangers of pharmaceuticals and they were seeing the dangers of the new pharmaceuticals that were being created. That really kind of solidified and hardened with the thalidomide disasters in Europe in the 1960s. Lots of public support at that time for preventing something like thalidomide happening in the United States. However, over the course of the 20th century, at the same time, there were a series of cases in the United States that were um, affirming people's medical autonomy in clinical contexts. Um, and this was relatively recent. So in 1968, they did a survey of oncologists about how often oncologists would lie to people about whether they had cancer. And at that time, 90% of the oncologists surveyed reported that they would sometimes lie to patients about the diagnosis if they thought that it would benefit the patient to be lied to. So 1968 is like not super long ago. It's the second half of the 20th century. And 90% of oncologists were lying to people about informed consent-based decisions about their diagnosis. And so, so our Current commitment to medical autonomy in clinical contexts is relatively recent, and it shows that there's a kind of moral progress that's possible when it comes to medical ethics. On the other hand, the history of self-medication shows that it doesn't always go in one direction and that we can kind of lose sight of an older right that's still really important for a lot of people, but slowly the expansion of this regulatory apparatus has restricted people's rights in ways that we now can see are counterproductive, but we thought at the time was making us safer. That example um, that's also commonly used in philosophy, right? Say you have a suicidal depressive husband um, that wants to, you know, take pills to commit suicide and you hide those pills from him kind of to prevent him from harming himself. I think intuitively, you know, some yeah. people would say, that can kind of be okay. Or how would you, how would you say that that case applies? Is that okay as a justification for paternalism? Well, sometimes the reasons that people will cite are things like, oh, well, you know, a lot of people rely on this person or it'll have these like negative externalities. I don't think that those are compelling justifications because if we think that it's morally wrong for a person to like abandon their family, say. Maybe we think about a person ending their life as a form of abandonment. Well, then there are many other ways for a person to do that. And then we wouldn't think that those things should be illegal. We would think, no, families don't have an entitlement for a person to stick around in this way. Um, now, I've argued that people in general have the right to die because they have the right to refuse life-saving treatment. And so if a person you know, had a curable but deadly illness but didn't want to treat it, I think it would be wrong to force that treatment on him. Now, if a person similarly wants to make a deadly decision in this case, I think it would be wrong to force it on him. I think that there's a role for, you know, providing people with alternatives. And I actually think that this is another case where when it comes to things like 
treating depression or suicide prevention, that restrictions on rights of self-medication might be counterproductive because some people might benefit from trying to use things like ketamine or MDMA to treat their depression, but those treatment options might not be available to them because of restrictions on access to self-medication. And so that's changing. But so yeah, I would say even in those cases, I think, I mean, it's very sad that a person's life gets to that point, but I don't think that the government or their doctor should force them to not make that choice. I agree. So if you take the example of Stuart Mill's bridge, right? So if you see someone walking towards a bridge that's broken, but you know, you can't, you know, signal to them that it's dangerous because they don't speak your language or they're deaf. Like, are you allowed to prevent them from walking over the bridge? Probably yes. But if they then tell you, hey, I actually, you know, don't want you to, wanted your help, right? I actually wanted to kill myself. That they yeah. probably still, you probably couldn't hold them in a cage yeah. to prevent them from trying again. That's, a, yeah. So I don't think that rights of self-medication preclude things like requiring that things be truthfully labeled, right? Like this labeling and fraud and adultery, like nobody thinks that like lying to people or misrepresenting a product is permissible. That also violates a person's rights because if somebody doesn't know what contains, if it's mislabeled, then I think that they can't really make an informed decision about what to put in their bodies. But I think we should be very cautious about how sympathetic we are to these types of justifications because that can sometimes be like the thin end of the wedge to leading into a kind of paternalistic policy framework because people will say like, oh, but people also are misinformed about, you know, what they should value or they're misinformed about how risk averse they should be. Um, and I don't think that we should any of those types of normative uh, claim get smuggled in under the guise of just trying to inform people or make sure that they make an informed choice. At some point, people are going to have to be permitted to make informed choices that everybody else is going to disagree with. You argue ultimately for what you call a non-prohibitive certificatory approach to almost all pharmaceuticals. You may think exception for antibiotics. Why? I actually have sort of rethought that a little bit. The idea is that uh, antibiotic resistance, so like overuse of doxycycline plausibly is leading to the development of antibiotic resistant pathogens that are harmful to people. And to the extent that antibiotic overuse does lead to antibiotic resistant illness, yes, I think that that could be a kind of public goods justification of like limiting or restricting access to certain antibiotics in principle. If we think that the the natural commons are ones where you don't have these antibiotic resistant illnesses, like antibiotic resistant syphilis or whatever, spreading throughout society. So I think in principle, there could be a justification for restricting people's access to antibiotics. In practice, I'm less convinced that that's true because I think that we're developing technology that could potentially help us create or invent refine antibiotics that would be responsive to these antibiotic-resistant illnesses. And so to the extent that we're imposing barriers on pharmaceutical innovation that make this problem worse, I think that the first option should be to deregulate that space to make it so it's more possible for people to develop novel antibiotics, new antibiotics that could treat new things. Failing that, so in principle, yeah, failing that, I guess there could be restrictions under some empirical cases. I just am not clear anymore that we're there or that this would be necessary. I know the FDA is already offering a couple of exceptions to access trial stage drugs. What do you think of these initiatives? Do you have hope that um, we're getting towards a more or a less prohibitive approach? And do you think that the cured options for patients are good? Yeah, I think that patients and their advocates are continually making strides. And the patient advocacy movement against excessive pharmaceutical regulation really started in the 1970s with people at the National Cancer Institute. And then, of course, many people have heard of ACT UP, which is AIDS, HIV AIDS advocates advocating for faster approval of AIDS drugs in the 1980s and early 90s. 
now patients are very much more empowered and informed through the internet, their online spaces. And patients are becoming much more involved in the clinical trial system and in the drug development system, much more forceful in advocating for right to try, compassionate use act, um, access. I think that right to try bills, so the United States has a right to try bill that opens up a kind of path to access in some circumstances. If all parties involved agree for patients to access investigational drugs pre-approval under certain cases. So right to try, I think, is promising. There's been some work in the States to advocate for drug makers' rights to do off-label marketing, which I think is like a promising step towards rights of self-medication, letting people access truthful information about off-label uses of the drugs they might be interested in using. So I think these are all very positive developments. And I also think that Alongside those positive developments, there's positive developments in the late and dying space and the recreational drug space. I think that abortion rights is a little bit more in of a gray area policy-wise in terms of how we think about that. But I also think that thinking about abortion rights solely in terms of rights of self-medication is more complicated because that doesn't involve a clearly uh, straightforward self-regarding interest because some people think that there's other regarding reasons to restrict access to abortion. So if I were to kind of take like a black check on policy, I would say in general, I think that there's patient advocates and rights advocates of self-medication are making slow and steady progress towards expanding rights of self-medication. So we only have to solve the cost problem now. Yes, that is such a hard job. Whatever I say about that will not be satisfying to you, right? Yeah. Um... Like Alex Sabarak recently said, anything that's you could say that's wrong with the healthcare system is probably true because there's so many things that are wrong. In any case, do you have many conversations with regulators and policymakers um, about the kinds of arguments that we've been discussing and how do these conversations typically go? You know, I don't get invited. I haven't really thought of my own sort of philosophical yeah. engagement. Um could be like the most fruitful by partnering and pairing with people in think tanks. Cause I think that they have like much better, a much better sense of how to translate these philosophical ideas into policy. So for example, um, I really admire the work that the Cato Institute has done. And I've done some things with them, with Michael Cannon and Jeffrey Singer. And they've done a very nice job arguing like for specific policy reforms that could further people's rights of self-medication to reforming pharmaceutical and prescription drug regulations in the states or potentially in the country, the prescription drug requirements especially. Or um, there are people at the Goldwater Institute that have done work on uh, off-label marketing, uh, talk to them or Center for Growth and Opportunity. So I don't talk to policy makers directly. I talk to people who talk to policymakers because um, I don't know that uh, my philosophical arguments would necessarily be like the most effective way to pitch it to people. But uh, I'm really encouraged to see the rights of self-medication have been increasingly gaining traction with people who are in this policy space and in more of the think tank space. Um, and it's been really encouraging that they've been so open to talking about these ideas with me and then seeing how these ideas open up possibilities in policy context. Yeah, I disagree there. I think your arguments are very persuasive. Like I've spent a lot of time I love in, <laughs> I love yeah, yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Washington DC and also in think tanks. I was at AEI and at CSIS. And it just seems to me that, you know, policymakers, they're often very practical people, right? So often when they talk to academics in 98, 99% of the cases, it's just not practical enough for them or not understandable enough. But I think yours definitely falls on the, the much better, much more persuasive cases that you could present. At the same time, I'm not too hopeful in political change at the fresh level, to be honest. <laughs> right. It's just takes too long. Right. So that's why I focus my attention and my work more on alternatives. Right. So I'm based in Prospera, which is kind of an innovation friendly jurisdiction on the island of Roatan in Honduras where we want to make better laws and regulations, right? So for example, here it's uh, possible if any drug is allowed in any country in, of the top 20 OECD countries, 
it's allowed here, right? And if you want to do a private clinic or a medical practice, you just decide which regulations you're under. It can be existing regulations of a country, or you could even write your own if you find an insurance company and agree to binding arbitration, right? So this way you could potentially treat many people that don't have access to life-saving drugs um, through medical tourism, right? What an amazing thing to be able to provide that just as like a proof of concept, because I think one thing is that our political imagination is so limited right now by what we can see that people make up these kind of nightmare scenarios in their head about what a freer society would look like. But then if you could show actually a freer society looks like people traveling, you know, across the border so that they can get medical care that they were designing century at a lower cost or, you know, something like that. I feel like that proof of concept itself is just so valuable and like opening up our political imagination. Exactly. Like I was surprised myself. I mean, I think you need to travel and see other places and see how things are done there because otherwise, you know, you're stuck in status quo wise. I had no idea I'm living in Mexico city right now and it has a very large and functioning system of private clinics and I'm getting fantastic care here that I pay for out of pocket for a very low and affordable price, like much better than what I've gotten for like decades in Germany, which is considered one of the better healthcare systems. You wouldn't see that unless you experience that yourself and you see it can work differently. There are alternatives. Yeah. And I mean, the United States is much more, you know, slow moving regulatory machine, but even between the States, you see things like that here, like in. North Carolina, they have a model of direct primary care, which is just what you're saying. Like you can just go and there's like a menu of things that they provide out of pocket, no paperwork. And one reason that people like it is that it's just so much more consumer friendly. If people can see that that's possible, then they can advocate for it in their own states. But prosperity sounds like... Also, when you're an entrepreneur and when you provide like a new software or a new medical advice or new drugs, like you're... If you have private clinics or paying out of pocket, you're talking to, you can talk directly to the decision maker, right? Yeah. In that clinic and they can immediately add it to their bottom line if it adds value. And under many of the current system we have, you need to, you know, talk to insurers, talk to government, talk to regulators. And, you know, this just makes it much more hard to bring um, or scale innovation in the medical field, in the market. Absolutely. There's so many distortions, totally. Jessica, what is a human challenge trial? Oh, yeah. So, thank you for asking. So, um, currently, like research ethics committees and policymakers impose restrictions on how clinical trials are conducted. And one of those restrictions is that, pe- that drug makers are not permitted to run a challenge trial, where a challenge trial involves researchers on purpose, exposing participants, research participants, to a virus in order to test the vaccine or the treatment. So in a standard trial design, people will enroll everybody in a trial, vaccinate some of them, not vaccinate other people, and then just wait for people to naturally get exposed to something like COVID, for example. Whereas in a COVID challenge trial, researchers would deliberately expose vaccinated people to COVID to see how the vaccine functions. And so... It's basically like people can sign up for a job as a challenge trial participant. And it's nice because it enables you to gather data about the efficacy of a vaccine much quicker because you don't have to wait for people to acquire COVID through community spread out in the world. It's a lot faster. Why is it so controversial? Well... One worry is that people think that challenge trials could be exploitative. The current challenge trial model, a lot of it's like just people who are volunteering to participate, but people still worry that it could be unacceptably risky for trial participants to get a vaccine and then deliberately expose themselves to a virus like COVID because they can't make an informed decision about the risks and benefits of participating because they don't know what this vaccine involves, and they know for certain that they're going to be exposed to COVID and that's going to be very dangerous to them. I think that's a pretty unpersuasive justification given that we have 
current clinical trials, because like either way, somebody's getting the vaccine if they're participating in a standard trial versus a challenge trial. Either way, if they can consent to participate in a trial, they can consent to take an unauthorized vaccine. And either way, some of the trial participants are going to be exposed to the virus, at least in the case of a trial, of a challenge trial, the virus has been manufactured through good manufacturing processes. And it's like very clear how much they were exposed to. So I think a lot of the risks in challenge trials is that people think that they are more risky than a standard trial, but they're not more risky than a standard trial. Um, they're actually less risky than a standard trial in a sense because fewer people are needed to participate in them. And so another objection that I've seen besides this worry about people's ability to consent to the risk or the, the risks themselves being too high is that people worry that the challenge trial participants themselves would be like exploited or they wouldn't get paid enough or that they would be manipulated into participating. I think it would be great for them to get paid to participate in the challenge trials and that if anything underpayment is a worry i think that trial people who run the trials should pay a lot of money to induce people to participate and we already have people who are paid a lot of money to get exposed to covid and to get exposed to viruses they're called doctors and nurses um so health workers already need <laughs> a bunch of money so they can voluntarily expose themselves to the risk of transmission and so i think we should pay challenge trial participants like that we should treat them like health workers or medical researchers. But even if you're, you know, worried about people being induced to participate in a challenge trial because they have an extremely high probability, like a 100% probability of being exposed to a virus, I think that you could pay them to compensate them for taking on that risk. Some people worry that paying people for that risk would be exploitative, but yeah, the example That's of That's a fantastic nurses. example you gave with the doctors and nurses, yeah. yeah. And and frankly, it is exploitative to many of them, right? It's not pleasant. It's very high stress, yeah. very high risk for their health. But, you know, we rightly and correctly say that the people, the doctor and nurses that were on the front lines in an emergency are heroes, right? Yeah. I think that's fair to say. I think they're taking a very high risk for themselves and their health to help others. And in a way, that's case of volunteers for a human challenge trial who would voluntarily expose themselves yeah. to COVID to get good data. We should equally say, hey, you're, that's, that's very heroic of you. Yeah. And a lot of people, I mean, would, I mean, they wouldn't even do it for the money. Like there's an organization one day sooner and it has like tens of thousands of people who signed up during COVID to participate in a challenge trial. They were doing it for moral reasons. They were doing it because they just wanted there to be a vaccine faster to get approved faster. And so I feel like, you know, people are morally motivated. They, they get a lot of benefits from participating in something that's going to be so socially beneficial. And I think that, you know, yeah, we should treat them like heroes too. I, just like doctors during COVID had all of this praise and esteem. We should also encourage people to participate in challenge trials and pra praise them similarly. Exactly. Just to give some numbers to what human challenge trials could do in the future to get the same amount of statistical robustness with a clinical trial. Of the clinical trials we had for the COVID vaccines we had, we needed 50,000 participants, right? Yeah. Um, to get to 500 who received the treatment and got COVID to compare the, basically to get at the efficacy rate. So. You would need only 500 people um, in the human challenge trial to get the same amount of data quality. Yeah. And the thing to remember is in a clinical trial, the standard trial, people are still getting exposed to COVID. Mm -hmm. I think people bought the challenge trial because they're like, oh my gosh, you'd be exposing all these people to COVID deliberately. But like, you still need the same number of people to get exposed to COVID. I mean, it's again, speaks so sort then, of to probably the risky action versus risky inaction, right? And I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just saying for like a standard trial to work, it's weird because you have to wait the COVID <laughs> levels to rise enough that there's enough prevalence of COVID in order for enough of the people who are in the trial to get exposed to COVID. And so it's like you have to wait for the pandemic to get pretty bad in order to get the information you need about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine uh, in order for you to that kind of judgment. And so not only are the people in 
the standard trial being exposed to COVID. But while that trial is going on, so are a bunch of non-trial participants, just people in the community who are also getting exposed to COVID and dying of COVID outside of the context of a trial. And though we just think about like the human cost involved in delaying access to a vaccine while the standard trial goes on, when we could have just exposed an equivalent number to people to, to the vaccine in a more controlled environment where they had better, better access to medical care earlier and then gotten the vaccine approved quicker. It's just like there's so much. Yeah. yeah. And they would be voluntary. They wouldn't be getting COVID at their daycare or grocery store. They would be in a controlled, safe and safer environment with access to top medical care. I really think that the status quo bias in favor of the standard trial is just so destructive in this case. Is there any country in the world that allows human child trials? There are some human child trials in the UK. And there was, um, I think that's in the state, but for RSV, which is a respiratory virus. It's especially dangerous to babies. There's an adult challenge trial for RSV vaccine that was going on for a while. Yeah, there have been challenge trials in the past. They're difficult to get through IRBs, is my impression. Ethics boards are generally fairly reluctant to approve challenge trials, but hopefully the experience of COVID will change some attitudes about that as well. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so, although I'm not seeing that much of it yet, right? Because COVID, I think just exposed the fragility of the medical system to the world. Yet, you know, I think the pace of change in the policy area is definitely not fast enough, right? Because, you know, I think human challenge trials are such an obvious case and such an obvious, both morally and practically um, successful argument, at least from my view, but it seems we continue with business as usual, right? So frustrating. And the thing that really frustrates me is that often when you talk about this, or when you hear public officials responding to this, or just in general, at least sports and all the types of things, is that a lot of people have this kind of like made up social psychology in their head where they're like, well, if we allowed a challenge trial and something bad happened, that would undermine trust in the process. Or if we allowed rights of self-medication and people self-medicating was bad, then it would like have all of these like adverse psychological effects, or they're just kind of doing social science about like what the effect of a policy change would be on society without any evidence for it or real reason to believe it. It's just kind of their own catastrophizing about what would happen if we gave people more freedom than they currently had. That's why I love the idea of just having more experiments in living that can show people like, actually, you know, we did two trials, trials in the UK for RSC, you know, it was you know, it's not, it's not necessarily this bad thing uh, because I think that a lot exactly. of times risk aversion is just their own kind of imagined catastrophes that there's no evidence. Exactly. I mean, I come from the world of startups and entrepreneurship, right? And whenever we want to convince someone of the benefits of a new innovation, we have to pass a much higher bar. Like we yeah. typically take the 10x rule. Like what we provide as an alternative has to work at least 10x better to convince someone to change from the status quo alternative, because what they're seeing, they, un they systematically underestimate the downsides of the status quo and they systematically overestimate the risks of change, right? We have to be at least 10x better to be convincing. Status quo bias, man. It's like, it's, I mean, nobody sees the risks of the way we're doing it right now. Mm-mm. That's also what I'm hoping for, what we can create here on Prospera and through the insights of people like you um, about the sort of moral nature of these questions. And so I hope we can show alternatives. We can sort of take your insights and put them into action and show, hey, we can do it. We can do it differently. And it won't result in sort of the imagined catastrophes. You know, we can actually show the benefits and we can show anyone can anyone can do it the same way i think that the idea of regulatory reciprocity with other countries is just i think that is such low-hanging fruit <laughs> just to say <laughs> look in their regulatory process it's pretty legit probably okay for us it would be what? the easiest thing right i mean if the a said if the a said okay if the regulator regulator in norway or in singapore or in germany approved of this drug 
we're allowing it too. We trust. <laughs> but um, not invented here or not tested here. Right? Yeah. That's a, a very small reform that could be very meaningful to a lot of people. And so I'm excited to see how it works out for you guys. I'm optimistic. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being my guest, Jessica. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think you gave our listeners uh, a wealth of insights and um, that I hope inspires many of them to provide alternatives, right? I mean, we're in the business of creating 10x better alternatives. And we've seen there are a couple of opportunities to change, like better regulatory um, environments like here in Prospera, but also things like medical tourism and uh, policy initiatives for patients' rights. I leave you with some of these insights to go out there and change the world. Thanks yes, so much, Jessica. If would like to email me, they can just feel free to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. How they can, what's your email? How they, can they best reach you? Um, just my last name, Flanagan at richmond.edu. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Jessica. Thank you. Where leaders go, learning follows. At Harvard Business School, we offer in-person and virtual executive education programs on a broad range of business topics. Each program addresses real-world challenges and is taught by our world-renowned faculty. Join an exceptional peer group. Sharpen your leadership skills. Advance your career. It's your time. Go. To apply, visit hbs.me go. That's hbs.me go.